I am 24 years old. I am 21. I'm 29 years old. I'm 24 years old. I'm 36 years old. I am currently single. I am a divorced single mom of two little boys. I've been in a relationship going on two years. I'm currently not in a relationship. I'm single. I am in a relationship. I am married. I'm in an interracial marriage. And I have ADHD. And I deal with anxiety and depression. And I am bipolar with borderline personality disorder. The body does more if you have been battling since a young girl, being a sexual assault survivor. I have borderline personality disorder. And I have major depressive disorder. I have bipolar 2 disorder, PTSD. I have postpartum anxiety. I have diagnosed OCD and panic disorder. And I am diagnosed with ADHD and dysthymia. Hey there, lovers and friends. Yes, welcome to Lovers and Friends, a podcast hosted by myself, Shan Boudram. I'm an intimacy expert with a passion for driving important conversations around intimacy. And this episode definitely ticks both of those boxes. So let's talk about dating with mental illness. And by let's, I mean you, my community, Eileen Kelly, my special guest, and therapist, Nedra Glover-Tawab. All together, we're gonna be exploring what it looks like to manage a mental illness and a romantic life at the same time time. And by all together, I do mean all of us, because as Nedra said, what percentage of the population has issues with mental health that can get in the way of their day-to-day functioning? 100%. According to the Mayo Clinic, mental illness, also called mental health disorders, refers to a wide range of mental health conditions, disorders that affect your mood, thinking, and behavior. Now, I'm not a therapist and I have no business diagnosing anybody, but on a personal note, I will say that knowing what we all know now, saying that you have never struggled with mental health is just as wild as saying you've never had any health issues. Once we can acknowledge that this is an us and our people, not some people conversation, we can then move forward towards having more compassion, more care, and more interest in each other's stories. Some of our stories are inspiring and some are sad. Some are works in progress and some are calls to action from the community. Now in this episode, I don't do a whole lot of talking because I'm not an expert in mental health. So just like you, I'm here to listen. But I do want to share one model that I learned in abnormal psychology class that really helped me to understand why some people struggle more than others with their mental health. The model is called the diathesis stress model. And it helps us to understand the role that both genes and environmental triggers play in the development of mental illness. In other words, nature and nurture. So the word diathesis speaks to a biological predisposition, nature, towards a mental illness. And stress speaks to the environmental factors or psychological events, nurture, that can trigger a predisposition towards a mental illness. So the diathesis stress model is a theory that proposes that if a sufficient combination of a predisposition towards a mental illness plus a stress that can trigger a mental illness are present, then together they can activate a particular mental illness. Through this model, we can see a world where anyone with a mental illness's story could easily be ours. And it has to be cared for as if it is. Also, I hope we can have more compassion and less judgment for the endless list of people who are unfairly labeled as being crazy in love because they were placed in romantic dynamics where their threshold for normal behavior wasn't just crossed, 
it was stomped on. And with this in mind, I am really excited for you to hear Eileen Kelly's story. So I met Eileen Kelly as a sex educator, writer, and founder of the incredibly impactful Killer and a Sweet Thing site. And now she's a mental health advocate and also the host of Going Mental podcast. Eileen shared something really special for the first time ever publicly in this interview. And then after that chat, we're going into another dialogue with therapist Nedra Glover-Tawab. And to cap things off, I want to talk about my pregnancy more with all of you and specifically how that relates to mental health. So we're going full speed ahead into all of that, but right after this. The last time that I saw you, first of all, your first YouTube video, 2017. Yeah, maybe you came 16, to my apartment. 17. You taught me how to take sexy photos yes. of my ass, which I don't have one, but you taught me how to create one with the pose. A lot has happened since then. A lot for both of us. Well, I want to hear about you. <laughs> okay. What's happened to you since then? What's been your experiences? Oh my goodness. I think I met you, yeah, right around the time where I knew I wanted to go into sex education, sexology. I went and did that similar or the same exact program that you did with the Institute of Advanced Study of Human Sexuality. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And yeah, I was just kind of strutting down the path of sexuality and things were starting to take off for me. I had a website and then it was like, yeah, Instagram's blowing up and then I'm doing a podcast. I had a clothing line doing events. I'm sure you're familiar, but with all that and it was just a lot on me mentally and I kind of had to take a step away from work and my career to go focus on my mental health. To be quite frank, I felt like I was on a hamster wheel, like almost the success of the company and things were, I was so grateful for the success of everything, but my personal life and really my mental health felt like it was, what's the word, but. I want to say um, (laughs) suffering. Yeah, I was suffering or was coming at the expense. Yes. That's what I was looking for. Yeah, I felt like the success was at the expense of my mental health. And I was in a really toxic relationship at the time. And I was just literally losing my mind. I was very suicidal. I wasn't eating. I wasn't sleeping. Like, I really just wasn't functioning. So I knew, like, no career is worth this. I mean, I'm not going to have a career tomorrow if I'm not going to be around tomorrow. So I decided to take a step back and I took time off of work. I entered a outpatient program at Columbia um, and I went to therapy literally like in outpatient five days a week, group therapy for four hours a day. Had you never gone to therapy prior to that? I had gone to therapy. I actually had a therapist during this time and I felt like it wasn't helping me. Like I wasn't really able to manage the anxiety or the stress. Public speaking was really hard on me and I was touring and speaking at high schools and colleges and speaking at Columbia and I spoke at Brown and doing all of these things that I knew I, I loved doing, but at the same time, I was so nervous or so scared and had a lot of like imposter syndrome. I felt like I was struggling with. Why me? Why is this my life? There's other people who deserve the success more than me. Like it was really hard on my self-esteem and 
I just knew I needed to take a moment and reevaluate my life and what I wanted. What was your diagnosis when you went to the outpatient center? Yeah. So I actually then went to an inpatient center, well, residential center. So, and I have anxiety disorder and just like depression and all types of things. I went on meds, actually Lexapro, and I had a really good reaction to Lexapro. I'm on the OCD spectrum, so I have a lot of like body dysmorphic stuff going on, which I'm sure is in relation to Instagram, definitely played a big part in that. And once I went on meds, it really helped me, but I didn't want to rely on them. You know, I wanted to know that eventually if I decide to get off meds, I can be stable on my own. So that's really why I decided to pause my life. And I, I, I left my life for five months. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a phone for five months. Like I had no contact with the outside world. And I chose to go on my own volition. So I did this outpatient program. I was going five days a week and I actually felt even crazier I was going home. I was living alone in my apartment in New York City, and I would go all day to therapy, and then I would come home, and I could sit with my thoughts. I mean, my brain, I felt like, was trying to kill me, like literally telling me just so such negative self-talk, and I was like, I need a higher level of care because mm. I don't feel safe. I lived in a high-rise apartment. I had a balcony. Like, I really didn't feel comfortable living alone. So I t- spoke to my doctors at the outpatient program, and I was like, you know what? I I know I appear very high-functioning, and I think that was the problem for so, so long is I was able to go and speak at these speaking events. I was able yeah. to show up. I was able to do a podcast to facilitate several people working for me, have an office, you know, pay my bills. But half of the time, the other time, I'm wanting to to not be here. You know, I'm really struggling. And so that was a big disconnect with the people who are close to me because you don't look sick, Eileen. That's mm-hmm. what they would tell me. You don't seem to be struggling And it took a lot of convincing, actually. Like, I know I need this. I know I need to go to the hospital. I want to talk about having um, mental health diagnosis and being aware that this is a part of your life. So at this point now, this isn't something that you're like, I want to get past. It's something that I want to accept accept and be with. Yeah. Um, So you know that every person that you meet, that you see a potential long-term connection with, be that a business relationship or a romantic relationship, This is a part of you that you have to also introduce. A hundred percent. How do you do that? So I'm in a relationship currently, and it's actually the first relationship after I got out of my residential program. And part of my program was actually don't date for a year. That was really important to them, to my doctors. And Don't date at all? I don't see anybody or don't commit? Oh, no, don't date. I didn't have sex for five months, Shan. I brought a vibrator. (laughs) I brought a vibrator to my program, and I don't think anyone else brought a vibrator to their program or to the hospital, but I was like, I have needs. I'm going to be in this this house for five months, and oh, yeah, I've always had a boyfriend. I've always been really comfortable with my sexuality and always have sexual partners, and to sign myself up for going away and knowing that I'm not going to have any contact with or any, you know, sexual contact for five months. I mean, that was scary. Well, sex became a part. It's a part of your mental wellness. Yes. Yeah. And I'm happy you advocated for that. I did advocate for it. But yeah, coming out of it, when I entered this relationship that I'm in currently, 
I took things a little bit slower than maybe I normally would. And I also was very transparent about, hey, these are my vulnerabilities. When I'm under stress, I can almost appear manic or have like a manic episode. And this is what I need from a partner. And if you can't give me that or you're you're not capable, that's totally fair. Not everyone can sign up for this. But I know I'm worth loving and being in love and that I am also capable of giving love. And yeah, I found a partner who could meet me there. Did you have to tell the person, like almost come out? Oh, yeah. And it's it's funny because the more and more I talk about this online and I'm really trying to open up the dialogue around mental health, I meet other people who are like, oh, wow, my partner doesn't know I have a personality disorder. My partner doesn't know I've tried to commit suicide before. And it really speaks to intimacy and building a bond with someone. They need to know who you are. Well, the problem is that people, because they maybe are high-functioning, they think it's a part of themselves they have to tuck away and keep a secret. Oh, I mean, that was me for many years. Years and years and years. Yeah, I always felt like I had a mask on, literally. Yeah, I couldn't show, I didn't want to show anyone the crazy sides of me because you have a lot of these reinforced ideas of, oh, if I show them these things that I struggle with, they're going to leave me or they're, I'm unlovable. They're not going to love me. And so that was something I really worked on during my five months away. My doctor would always tell me, my therapist, you're not crazy. You have mental illness. Like you're, you're sick and you have to look at it like a physical illness. Mm -hmm. Like if I was in a wheelchair, if I had to go you know, I had liver issues. I had to go do dialysis once a month. People don't think twice about that, but there's just so much stigma around mental health. So if you were to explain the disorder in a scientific way that could help other people readily understand it, because a lot of people use the terms anxious and depressed interchangeably with um, a passing mood versus a chronic disorder. So to explain to people what it is that you or go through, what is it? Um, okay, so I have borderline personality disorder. It's an illness marked by an ongoing pattern of varying moods, self-image, and behavior. Um, these symptoms often result in impulsive actions and problems in relationships. Um, they can experience intense episodes of anger, depression, anxiety that can last from a few days hours to days. What I learned when I was at McLean, which is the reason that I decided on McLean, because it's part of Harvard um, Medical School. So they have a lot of incoming top research. Part of it is actually brain chemistry. So it could be hereditary. So a lot of women in the program that I went to, you know, their moms had it or yeah, it, it can be hereditary. But then also part of it is you know, nature versus nurture. And if you would experience like a traumatic event in childhood yes. or some type of abandonment, it can trigger this. Yes. So if you already had the vulnerability of like, maybe you have some brain chemistry, mental illness going on in the family, and then you deal with a fucked up life event, it can bring this on. And they're not a hundred percent positive or there with the research to say for certain. But in my experience, you know, I lost my mom when I was really young in a very sudden way, she died of a brain aneurysm and had definitely like a really messed up childhood that I do think added to this. And for years and years when I was younger and I didn't have a diagnosis, I felt just very lost and like you don't have a, 
a fully formed identity if you if you struggle with borderline personality disorder like they I think one of the diagnostic criteria is yeah having identity disturbance and a lot of people with the disorder would explain it as feeling empty. Mm. And so for a lot of my life in high school and in college and moving to New York, I, I felt like this overwhelming emptiness. I've definitely struggled with suicidal ideation feelings for honestly as long as I can remember. And yeah, I feel like I jumped into a career and was trying to keep the other stuff at bay without really understanding what it was. Like trying to prove to yourself that I'm okay. That you're worthy and that you're okay and that you're great. But that doesn't change that underlying feeling. Yeah. And it was a feeling that I literally had to pause my life and go to really like a top program in the country and, and check myself into the hospital to work on. Was that where you got the diagnosis? I got my diagnosis actually right before when I was in the outpatient program. Yes. But the reason I got the diagnosis, I actually kind of self-diagnosed myself. One of my good girlfriends was diagnosed with borderline. And she told me kind of the summer when I was struggling with a lot of stuff, and I had never even heard of it. Like, I have borderline personality, and I was just researching it, and I was like, holy shit, this sounds like me. Like, I've been suicidal on and off since I was like 15. Um, when you're under a lot of stress, you can almost appear manic, but it's actually from the borderline and definitely have had really unhealthy romantic relationships. A lot of, yeah, don't abandon me, so I'll stay in really toxic relationships. And that didn't felt didn't feel like it aligned with how I felt about sex and sexuality because I do believe in consent and standing up for yourself and being worthy. Yet in my own romantic relationships, I couldn't withhold that. Mm -hmm. Like that was a struggle for me. Oh, I stayed in relationships way longer than I should have. But again, to your point about making the comparison to physical, we understand that physically certain people are not able to do certain things. Yes. Like I cannot dunk a basketball. <laughs> it doesn't matter how much I want to do it or how much I will myself or how much research I do. It just more than likely is not feasible for my body type. And accepting the same thing that for you mentally, based on what you are born with, it more than likely, these things that seem like, we'll just do it or just feel it, just accomplish it. You just can't. Exactly. And I think I put pressure on myself because of some of my values or views of like, I don't want to have a partner who cheats on me. I wouldn't stay with them. I wouldn't tell my girlfriends to stay with their boyfriend. Yet I'm so freaking out of them abandoning me or going through a breakup that I will stay in this relationship that I know isn't working for me. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of also part of the reason I went away. I was in a really toxic, like emotionally abusive relationship. And I knew that the only way I was actually going to leave it is if I literally signed my life away. So I signed my life away for five months. How freeing is it to get the diagnosis, to know like... So freeing. Because Like you the biggest you... weight off my shoulders. I mean, yeah. At the same time though, I don't want to be diff find by my diagnosis, you know? So that's a fine line. And actually it is very treatable, which is awesome. It takes a lot of hard work and it's called dialectical behavioral therapy, which is what I went away for. But, you know, I may get to a point where I'm married and I'm in a stable relationship and I don't have those fears of abandonment or I'm not feeling suicidal every day. I mean, I haven't felt suicidal in over a year. Congratulations. So, thank you. So it's like, yeah, you start to knock it off. And then hopefully one day, and I'm like, do I have these vulnerabilities and struggles? A hundred percent. 
do I feel like I'm out of control anymore? No. Mm -hmm. And again, to liken it to illnesses that people live with, like lupus, for example, you understand what the triggers are that cause you to go into an episode. Yes. And so you avoid the sun. And I never knew what my trip, I never knew before. I thought I was just, I honestly just felt kind of crazy or like, yeah, I have anxiety about public speaking or I act kind of crazy sometimes in my relationships, but I don't know what was causing it. You know, I could say like, I lost my mom when I was really young and I had kind of a messed up neglectful traumatic childhood and I have these family issues and la 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 la. And so certain ways I know why I act the way I do in my relationships, but I know there's something bigger at play here because I genuinely feel sometimes like I can't control myself. And I just, yeah, I kind of like succumb to the diagnosis and I just felt so much relief. Like this is bigger than me. Let's talk about bringing your mental health illness into the bedroom, into the bedroom and into a relationship. Yeah. A lot of people want to leave it outside. I had this conversation with somebody about God, actually, uh, interestingly enough, that they felt like in order to have sex, they had to leave God outside of the bedroom, which it's a big part of their life, their religious beliefs. But so it never, sex never really felt complete and full because a massive part of them was always waiting outside. So they started to invite God into the bedroom. Sex just got so much better. Better, yeah. So I'm wondering if you relate to that. No, I definitely relate to that. Yeah, I think there was a lot of fear of, oh man, I don't want to appear a certain way. I hope this relationship doesn't get to the point where I start acting crazy and then they leave me. So yeah, always putting on a facade. I think I had a real fear of intimacy. So I had pushed people away or I've been in relationships where I've cheated on partners because I was afraid of that intimacy, like almost self-sabotage. And so now with everything that I know and, and also not wanting to continue that spiral or the way my life was going. Yeah, I have these conversations with my partners. I mean, my boyfriend that I'm with currently, I told him, I was like, I struggle with borderline personality disorder. And that was that was the first time I had ever told a How'd current you partner that. Where did you bring it up? Tell me, set the scene for me. Oh, I'm not even trying to remember because I feel like it was so casual. That's amazing. Like, <laughs> it wasn't like a like, sit down have your favorite meal. Like it's just something that rolled off the tongue. Yeah. And I think also I was looking for a different type of partner after I got out of the hospital. I wanted someone that I could communicate with. I didn't want to play games or yet try to seduce someone. Like I came out of there being so much more comfortable with who I am that I wanted a partner who saw all of me and can accept me for who I am. Do I still have issues with my boyfriend? Yeah, all the fucking time. And I mean, relationships are hard and you have to work at them. And especially when you're bringing in like a literal personality disorder. But yeah, I think I just told him, hey, I have specific needs in this relationship, such as I will go a little Lulu if my partner is like liking other girls' photos on Instagram. And that's just something that makes me feel insecure. And then it will aggravate some of these vulnerabilities or behaviors. And when I'm really stressed out, then I can kind of seem manic and I don't ever want to get there again. And I know how to control it. I just felt like he was so receptive. And that's when I knew like, wow, I found such a genuine good guy. And I want to be with this person because I had been with partners in the past who I I didn't know why I felt that way, but I had brought up similar things. And I've had ex-boyfriends be like, well, why do you care so much? So why are you, lo- why are you st- looking at whose photos I'm liking? 
or you're being so dramatic. And so I had gotten a lot of that pushback in past relationships, which makes you kind of scared to even bring this stuff up. Yes. And so my boyfriend's reaction was so the opposite. He was like, oh, no problem. Thank you for telling me that. Because mm-hmm. it's really just laying out, here is how I can enjoy being with you. And when I'm in enjoyment being with you, I have the highest chance of one, looking after your needs and two, you feeling fulfillment being with me as well. Oh, 100%. If I feel comfortable, then I feel like sexy and I want to have fun and I want to get freaky or like do all these things. But bottom line, I need to feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. And these are the things that cause me discomfort. Do you feel like in order to get the most out of relationship, because there are some people who don't want to share their mental illness because one, they manage it and they have understanding of their triggers and Maybe instead of, maybe they might go ghost in that person for a period of time if they feel like they're overwhelmed and they, they're not able to put on the mask in the moment. So they have their own system, which allows them to hide that part of themselves from somebody else. Do you think that person is doing themselves a disservice in the same way somebody who's hiding parts of themselves from a therapist is doing themselves a disservice? I don't know. I think it's a little bit different because I really believe like until you're comfortable and you've dealt with it and you know what you're dealing with, it's no one's business. I mean, for years and years, I've known I've had borderline now for two years. This is the first time I'm talking about it publicly. And yeah, that's a decision I don't think everyone has to make. I mean, it's your your most intimate struggle. And a lot of people don't understand. And unfortunately, I've been exposed and come from a family who they're not really familiar understanding of mental health issues. There is so much stigma around mental health that it's not real, that people who have depression are lazy, that people who are anxious are just high strung. And if you got off your phone a little bit, like you wouldn't have these problems. And I'm like, how many times do these studies have to come out (laughs) that it's like, it's fucking brain chemistry. You want to put me through a CAT scan? You can look at my brain. It will look different than like an average healthy person. And I think what you just said is so beautiful because I've had a similar conversation with friends of mine um, who are in the LGBTQ plus community, right? Because there's this movement now of come out, Mm -hmm. come out, be who you are. Your family needs to know, your job needs to know, your partners need to know, obviously you're having sex, some of these probably know, but nonetheless, <laughs> there's this pressure to like be proud and be who you are, but there are still people who are like, no, it would impact my mental health. It would impact my opportunities. It would impact my family. My family and I wouldn't have a relationship anymore. And I'd rather some relationship than no relationship. Absolutely. And that- So I'm okay with keeping this part of myself siloed off in this compartmentalized area. Yes. I like, I think you have to do what's best for you. It's the same thing of like consent. And it's great too, because it feels like you took your, your time with yourself as it made sense. Yep. Like you sought the diagnosis when you were ready. You found a romantic partner you could share that with when you were ready. And in this case, you shared this publicly when you were ready. Yes. And it didn't all happen at the same time. No, and it's going to be a continuous journey. And I'm just trusting the process more and more. If you were to introduce somebody to you and also introduce your diagnosis into that conversation. What would that sound like? Hi, I'm Eileen Kelly. I have a personality disorder. I struggle with borderline personality disorder. Just means I have certain vulnerabilities that I bring into daily life, into my romantic relationships, sexual relationships. And I need to prioritize my health to be a good partner to anyone. Like that has to come first. That's beautiful. <laughs> that was gorgeous. <laughs> Thanks.
Shout out to you, Eileen, for sharing your story, your experience, and your expertise. To find out more about Eileen and her courageous mission, be sure to follow her on Instagram, which I don't know how you got this handle. It's literally just at Eileen. Full stop, period, no underscore. No, this is literally just at Eileen. And also listen to her podcast, which is called Going Mental, available everywhere that podcasts are. To close this episode out, we are going to have a conversation with the incredible Nedra Glover-Tawab, whom I teased at the top of the episode with the fire quote that I truly hope you're going to share with your community. What percentage of the population has issues with mental health that can get in the way of their day-to-day functioning? 100%. 100%. Nedra is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Set Boundaries, Find Peace. And she's a licensed therapist and renowned relationship expert who has a community of millions who know, like you're about to find out, how life-changing her wisdom is. Hi, Nedra glover Tawab, author of Set Boundaries and Find Peace. And just overall, everybody's favorite online therapist. And I just want to say thank you so much for setting aside the time to chat with me. Actually, I want to go back and get a little bit of history from you. Um, when did you get started in the field of mental health? You know, going not necessarily just going back from your school standpoint, but your you know early origin stories. And how have you seen the field change? You know, since you began making this your passion and purpose. I would say birth. Um, I think that. Even as a child, I love having conversations with people. I noticed um, when people were having challenges, I've always had this instinct to talk to people about things and ask questions. I didn't always know that it was like mental health issues, but I for sure thought that there is something bigger here because I saw other people doing well and others not. And I didn't think that that challenge was like, oh, they're just lazy. It's like, no, there has to be something greater here. There has to be a reason that a person has addiction. There has to be a reason that people are engaging in certain behaviors. So I've always been interested. I was certainly a kid who in elementary school watched Oprah. Um, so I knew what like molestation and emotional neglect and (laughs) I was just very much like, I just, I just want to know this stuff. I want to know about humans. I am a human. Um, I've had my own experiences and the more I know, the, the better I can understand people. Since you started as this, as a passion, you know, obviously as Oprah, as your guidepost, this is somebody who's been very comfortable around the topic, but the rest of society really hasn't. Have you seen a shift in people's attitude towards therapy and mental health? Somewhat. I don't know that the world has changed so much that we could just go out and have like anxiety conventions and boundary talks everywhere. Um, I think there will always be an audience for it, but I'm not sure that we are at the point where everyone gets it. If that were the case, then people would be better respecting of boundaries. People would be better understanding of anxiety and depression and all sorts of issues, but we are not. Now, do we know these words now? Perhaps, but we still have so far to go. We still have to fight for people to have days off work for mental health. We still have to fight for people to be able to leave um, work because of mental health issues. So we understand a bit more, but so much work left to do. 
What percentage of the population has issues with mental health that can get in the way of their day-to-day functioning? 100%. 100%. We all have mental health. We don't all have um, severe mental health issues. We are not all clinically diagnosed as something, but there are times where I have an ADHD moment and I'm not diagnosed with ADHD. There are times where I am feeling more anxious than others. There are times where I'm a bit obsessive about, oh my gosh, did I turn the stove off? I wouldn't classify those as like clinically treatable issues, but certainly that is a mental health issue if we're talking about symptoms. So that's a very fascinating mic drop moment, I think, because this episode in particular is about dating somebody who struggles with mental health. And a lot of people are going to tune out in saying that I don't relate to that or I don't know anybody who relates to that. What would you say to that person? I would say 100% of people relate to that. Anxiety, I think, is the most common mental health issue. So often people will say, I'm not anxious, but we'll say other stuff. They're severely nervous. They have um, performance anxiety. They're having stomach issues, sleep issues, all of these things that are indicators of anxiety, but they're not naming it as anxiety. That is a ton of folks. When we look at the amount of people on sleep medications, when we look at the amount of people who have to um, vomit or go to the bathroom before performing, when we look at people who have um, gastrointestinal issues, when we look at all of these things that occur within society is so many of us, is so many of us. So we do understand it, but first we have to learn how to name it. So I want to talk specifically, like I mentioned, about mental health, people who have a mental health issue, a chronic issue that is diagnosed that they are on treatments for, Mm -hmm. and intimacy, you know, because these people are still lovable and deserving of love and extremely capable of giving love. But there are often barriers that come into play when you want to bring your mental health into a romantic relationship. So I want to talk about it from two different angles. One from the person who has a mental health issue, who wants to integrate that into their intimacy. And two from somebody who is dating somebody who has identified that they have mental health issues. Because to your point, 100% of people have, but I'm sure a much smaller percentage have actually identified that as being an issue or something they want to make sure that their partners are well aware of in advance. So for people who have a diagnosis and who are entering into relationships What have you found are healthy ways to introduce that as a part of who they are? Being upfront and honest and giving folks information because one person's mental health issues may not look like another person. So even if you know someone who has experienced obsessive compulsive disorder, it doesn't mean that it will present like this person that you're dating or something you've seen on TV, like Things can look very different for different people. And so it's really important to share your personal story and to also help the person understand what this is. So often when I am helping couples and one person has a mental health diagnosis, there's so much education we have to give because this person is really taking these things personally. If I have social anxiety Mm -hmm. and I don't want to go to your parents' house, it's like 
oh, you never want to be around my parents. It's like, no, it's, it's really social anxiety. So the, the anxiety is saying they're going to say this about you. They're going to feel this way about you. It has nothing to do with you loving your partner and wanting to support them. It has more to do with their processing of things and and their diagnosis and not you wanting them to be something. Well, on that note, the person who is dating somebody who has um, a diagnosed mental health issue, what do you want that person to know or to do more than anything else? So somebody who, again, who has worked with countless couples who have this exact same configuration. Support you and that support could be understanding. It could be allowing people to process whatever they are feeling, particularly if they get into a slump where they are, you know, not feeling so great for two days, giving them that space to feel that and not forcing them to get out of it. Because in our attempts to make people feel better, we make them feel worse sometimes. Just cheer up. You don't have to feel like that. It wasn't that big of a deal. And those things typically don't help people who are not in control of, you know, how they're responding to stuff. So you saying that is saying, oh, here's another situation where I'm not trying hard enough to feel better. Now, I'm trying to think through the process because... If I, for example, identify as somebody who is depressed and I find somebody who I feel like I have a good connection with and there's a sense of trust there. I talked about this in um, the previous segment, my friend Eileen Kelly, who is a social media public facing figure and educator, essentially gave up her life and her career to put herself in both an in and then an outpatient center because she realized she just couldn't do it alone. And a big part of that was learning how to integrate her mental health diagnosis, which she's diagnosed with bipolar personality disorder, but learning how to integrate that into her world. Because for so long, she was doing life in spite of it and going as far as she possibly could until she couldn't go any further, rather than like constantly considering that this is a part of who I am and I have to know how to successfully integrate this into every part of my life. And a big part, obviously, of that integration is her romantic life. And so I'm trying to put myself in her shoes and thinking, I finally feel comfortable identifying as somebody who has a mental health issue that's not going away. That is a part of who I am in my existence. I feel comfortable with that. I finally feel comfortable going out there in the world and connecting with people because for a long time, that was extremely scary for me in my past experiences, not being so positive. And then I meet somebody who I feel great around and I feel connected with. And then I tell this person that I have this personality disorder, or I've got an issue and they accept me. How do I then go to that person who I feel like has already taken on a lot and say, okay, now can we also go to therapy together to ensure that we keep a good thing going? Don't buy into be- to the belief that you're too much, because what I what when you were saying that it sounds like I'm all of this and someone has to take me. We're all too much. We're we come with our own stuff. We have our own stories. We have our own preferences. We all have a lot going on. So what I have going on is not bigger than what another person may have going on. So not assuming that this is going to be a deal breaker 
in a relationship. It is a healthy thing. People without mental health issues may want to proactively go to couples counseling. So it's not a thing that you're asking someone to do out of nowhere. I think if you want to be in a healthy relationship, it might make sense at some point just to go to counseling. It might make sense at some point to read a few books about relationships, whether there is a mental health issue present or not. We talked about in the interview, bringing your mental health positive, the heavy, the still uncharted and the parts that you struggle with. When you're trying to integrate that part of yourself into your sex life, is there a separate conversation that has to be had around boundaries and triggers? If you know what your triggers are, there are times where particularly with sexual health issues, I've seen people try to pretend that they don't have any. This is the first time this has ever happened, okay? It would be better if you could just be honest that you're having an issue with arousal or an issue with performance. It makes sense to talk about that and not to pretend that there is no issue present and to talk through, again, strategies because vulnerability increases um, sexual experiences, you know, it's a huge reason why why women can orgasm, right? When you are mm-hmm. comfortable with a partner because you trust them, you've been vulnerable, you have a higher likelihood of actually having a pleasing experience. So it makes sense to talk through these things. And if the thing is impacted by mental health, that can actually change the sexual health issue. And the million dollar question of when? Hmm. When is a good time to start these conversations? I'm often surprised at how often we have sex without talking about having sex. And then we have all of these people who say, oh my gosh, our sex life is terrible. Have you ever talked about sex? No. (laughs) Well, uh, just like you would tell a waiter or waitress how to prepare your burger, you have to tell people what is pleasing and not pleasing to you. And typically you do that before somebody brings the burger out. You don't wait until you have the burger to say, oh, you know what? I didn't want onions. (laughs) You say it before. You talk to people about these things before. We can talk about everything under the sun, salary, where we want to retire, how many kids we want to have. But there is something about talking about sex before having sex that many people are like, oh, oh my gosh, I can't be honest. I have to make up these stories or play into a fantasy. And it's like, hey, tell the truth. So both of you can have a wonderful experience. And I think by being honest, it takes some of the pressure out of the situation. It can decrease the anxiety. So in this interview, this is a person who had done very well for themselves and, mm-hmm. you know, lived in New York and mm-hmm. had a beautiful apartment there. So there's obviously a level of financial privilege that comes with that. And, you know, Eileen was able to book herself into these centers and to stop working for five months to dedicate herself to healing and wellness. And as we're having these conversations, there is a level of inaccessibility that you feel like, mm-hmm. wow, is there? Is it only people who have a certain level of financial stability that have the privilege of looking after their mental health? Absolutely. There is still an accessibility issue. Even if you have Medicaid, sometimes you have to pay a copay. So you have to have money for a copay. The copay may, to some people, be like, oh my gosh, that is low. But for others, it is still high when you have no money. Um, so it's very important to 
check out those state resources and also, you know, the things available through emergency services because, you know, hospitals cannot turn people away in some places. You know, the county cannot turn people away. There are programs at many colleges for mental health. There are also um, therapists who offer sliding skills, but there are still so many um, people who need services and not enough help. And so for people right now who want service and are afraid that help is inaccessible to them, mm-hmm. where would be the best place to start? Contact the therapist in your area. If you do not have the means to pay, talking to them about some free resources because they would be the best person to know in your area that this program over here has something or someone else has something, but certainly contacting someone in your area. Um, Social workers would be really helpful with that because they probably have a list of, of resources and also your state department of mental health services in the county. Nadra. Thank you so much. Honestly, thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. Everybody get like millions of others and follow Nedra on Instagram for daily affirmations, conversations, and healing starters. To do so, go to at Nedra Tawab, spelled N-E-D-R-A-T-A-W-W-A-B. Also, one more thank you to Eileen Kelly, who again, you can check out on the podcast Going Mental. And last but not least, thank you to you. Those of you who contributed, you really made this episode something so, so special. And those of you who are here to listen and amplify others and you're still here at the end, I am so, so incredibly grateful for you. Lastly, before I go, I wanted to share a pregnancy update with all of you because I announced here on this podcast a couple episodes back that I'm currently pregnant. I also shared that this is news that I'm keeping within this podcast community because I think it's pertinent to us and the work that we're doing and the authentic expression that we are giving each other here. It is necessarily pertinent for everybody on my Instagram, which includes employers and various friends and opinions. Like that's um, for another time. But here it was very important for me for you to know where I'm at so you have more context for a lot of the things I'm saying or the reflections uh, that are coming out of me during this time. Also, as I mentioned in the episodes a couple weeks back is a big part of wanting to share with at least some people is you need people to know that you're not okay. (laughs) Like we're encouraged as women to hide because you're not, you know, there's a lot of questions in the first trimester about the culpability, I don't know if that's the right term, but the culpability of the pregnancy. And so you want to be on the safe side and not really share until you have more information and you're more solid. But you also rob yourself of community and of compassion when we don't open up. And I really do require a lot of community and compassion because I'm a part of the percentage of people who have a really, really awful first trimester. And I don't even want to say really, really, because there's people who have really, really, really awful first trimesters. Um, mine is just, you. mine is a particular agony that I've never experienced before in any other context. Um, so for me, it's really terrible, but that word is extremely relative. I just feel sick literally all the time. I have very low energy. I have very low motivation. I have zero sex drive and I can swing into very depressive thoughts and depressive states and thought patterns that are very foreign to me. 
And last time that I experienced this, I gave myself the benefit of doing research to see if this was common. Cause I had heard like most people about postpartum depression and postpartum heightened anxiety, but I hadn't really heard a lot about term pregnancy, um, anxiety and depression. So I want to read a little bit about that and just hopefully this hits somebody who needs to hear it. And then I'll share in the end, if it does, uh, what I think a good next step is. Clinical depression is common among women during pregnancy. However, it gets a lot less attention than postpartum depression, which causes many pregnant women to underestimate and underreport their experiences. Some symptoms of depression include changes in sleep, energy level, appetite, and libido. You may have noticed that these are the exact same symptoms you should expect during pregnancy. And as a result, many may overlook that in addition to being pregnant, you may also be experiencing a form of depression or increased anxiety. According to the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, close to one out of five of women will struggle with depressive symptoms during pregnancy. And I do believe that I am part of that one. Um, I've had thoughts that are very foreign to me. I've had desires that are very foreign to me. I've lost drives that are very normal to me. And I'm grateful that I have this information to be aware of that. And I'm more grateful that I have a community of people that I can reach out to, to be honest about what I'm going through, to have people to check in on me. And I'm going to say that if you're listening to this episode and wondering, what do you do with this? You know, if it's not you who's in the driver's seat, even if it is, you know, what do you do with this information? The knowledge that so many people for various different reasons are going through some form of illness, um, some form of mental illness. What I found has been really helpful to me is somebody who just validates me. My sister, Lauren Morrison, calls me several times a day, at least every day, and every single time she asks how I'm feeling. She asks what I'm going through. And sometimes two days in a row, my answer is, I feel great, I feel better. But the third day, she still asks. Um, and that just means the absolute world to me to have somebody who affirms me, somebody who's checking in on me, um, and somebody who I don't feel like I'm complaining or I have to prove how sick I am or prove how needy I am to. They just understand that right now, and maybe right now is not a fixed amount of time. Maybe for you right now is months on end. And it doesn't take up a lot. I don't take up a lot of time definitely in answering those questions. It doesn't become the focal point of our relationship. But the fact that you make such a intention to ask me every time means the world. And I don't know if that's information that's going to be helpful to somebody. Obviously, for many people, they need a step further. They need psychiatric treatment. They need medical intervention. And that's a path that people should look into. But I do think it starts with somebody who's just there every single day and making it very clear that they don't care if your answer is imperfect. They don't care if your answer is whiny. They don't care if you're going to say the same thing you said for the past 20 days in a row or 20 months in a row that you feel sick, that you feel down. They're still going to show up for you and they're going to ask. Um, and that means a lot. So thank you to Lauren. And thank you to everybody who has DM'd me to say congratulations. If you haven't, that's totally fine too. I feel the love. And once again, I'm grateful for the grace and the time and the love that you've extended to every single guest who has come onto this podcast. So keep it up. <laughs> and furthermore, how are you doing? I really hope somebody asked you that question today. And I hope they ask you tomorrow too. Lovers and friends. Lovers and friends. I'm gonna take you on a trip, baby. I don't pretend. I say, lovers and friends. Uh, I'm gonna hold you down, down to the end. I say, Lovers and friends. 
love is a friend, yeah, and I said, love is a friend, uh, I'ma hold you down, down to the end, I said. 